Well, good morning. I hope you've all had as good a week as I have had this past week. With this wonderful continuation of dry weather, I've been able to do so much in the garden. All of us are aware of certain things we cannot do without. We cannot do without air to breathe. We cannot do without water to drink. We cannot do without food to eat. But we're equally aware there are many, many things that we can do without. Now, unfortunately, a great many people in this world don't agree with that. There are things they want to have, want to have, want to have, must have, must have. We don't need, you know, a massive great house with about 15 rooms. We don't need a car that costs £100,000. We don't even need a holiday that lasts six months. These are things we don't need. If we get them, we'll fine. But if we don't get them, it doesn't matter. But today we're going to think about three things the Bible tells us we simply cannot do without. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this tremendous blessing you've given us in the Bible that we have in our hands. This great revelation of truth is so precious. And we thank you that the same Holy Spirit who guided those who wrote this book is here with us individually and collectively to help us to understand it, to receive it, to store it in our minds and hearts, and ultimately to live by it. So please, will you help us by your Spirit now, in Jesus' name. Amen. Now all these three things are found in the letter to the Hebrews which, you will remember, was a letter written to Jewish Christians who were struggling a bit and finding it going hard and were even being tempted to wander back into the more familiar territory of Judaism. And the writer writes to encourage them and exhort them and keeps pointing them to the superiority of the Lord Jesus and the Christian faith to everything that preceded it in the religion of Judaism. The first thing we want to look at, which we cannot do without, is found in Hebrews chapter 9 at verse 22, where the writer says, in fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. This is the Old Testament law for the Jewish people. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Now, I have heard of Christians who prefer not to speak about the blood of Jesus. They make rather rude remarks about it being a kind of butcher shop religion. Terrible thing to say. We cannot do without the blood of Jesus. We're going to think for a few minutes about the blessings, some of the blessings, that come to us because our Lord Jesus shed his blood. Number one, in this very same chapter, in verse 12, Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 12. The blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. Now I've missed the reference I was going to give you first. Sorry about that. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 12. Hmm. Sorry. 
anyway, the, the point is, he has obtained, oh, it's his, I'm, I'm, I'm not right, I'm, I'm, I'm one verse ahead of it. In verse 11, he did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. By doing what he did in shedding his blood on the cross, our Lord Jesus has obtained for all his people what the Bible calls eternal redemption. Now the word eternal, remember, means both quality and quantity. It is an absolutely perfect, perfect life and it's also one that lasts forever. And the word redemption means liberty, liberation, because the appropriate price has been paid. And because the Lord Jesus paid that awful price of shedding his blood on the cross, he has obtained for all of us who know and love him eternal redemption, an extraordinarily precious blessing. If we go over for a moment to chapter 5 of Revelation, we find there John describing what he saw and heard as he was privileged to look into heaven and see what was going on and hear what was going on. And he says there that he heard people singing a new song, and the new song was addressed to Jesus. And they were singing these words, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open the seals, because you were slain, and with your blood you ransomed, purchased men for God. Same concept as redemption. From every tribe and language and people and nation. I like to think of Jesus walking into the slave market of this world. Remember the Bible tells us, Jesus tells us, that because we are sinners by nature and choice, we are also slaves inevitably. Slaves to our fallen sinful nature. And I like to picture Jesus walking into the world's slave market and somebody asking him, Who is it you want to buy? Whose freedom do you want to secure? Who is it you want to liberate? And our Lord Jesus answered, I have come to liberate them all. I have come to buy them all. That's an impressive thought. It blesses me every time I have that thought. He came into the slave market of the human race to purchase our redemption. And secondly, his precious blood cleanses our consciences back to Hebrews chapter 9 and we find in the same chapter this concept of Jesus' blood cleansing our consciences verse 14 how much more then will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God our conscience is a very, very valuable asset. Every human being arrives in this world armed with a conscience. And that conscience works more or less adequately until we suppress it so often, ignore it so often, deny it so often, that it no longer works effectively for us. It distinguishes between right and wrong, good and evil. And we know very well that we need this restraint upon our fallen sinful nature to prevent us going completely overboard into wrongdoing and evil. And our conscience is defiled when we sin. But the blood of Jesus cleanses our conscience. So when I come to Jesus 
It's not just in the general sense that I'm cleansed from my sin. That cleansing includes my conscience. It's been imperfect. It's been defiled up to that point. And now it's absolutely clean so that I may serve the living God and distinguish between right and wrong. Over the page in chapter 10, verse 22, we have another reference to the conscience that is so precious. Where the writer says, Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience. Yes, there it is again, emphasized again, that the sprinkling of Jesus' blood upon our lives cleanses us from a guilty conscience. Now you and I, if we're honest, we know very well what it's like to have a guilty conscience. I certainly do, and I'm sure you do as well. When we have thought wrong, spoken wrong, done wrong, our conscience says, hmm, and we feel rightly guilty. And to be freed from that is such a very precious thing to be freed from that guilty conscience over in Hebrews chapter 13 the writer says there in verse 18 pray for us we are sure that we have a clear conscience and desire to live honorably in every day in every way I wonder if you and I can all say honestly before God this morning praise God I have a clear conscience. That's what God wants for us. If we are saved by the grace of God, if we're new people in Jesus Christ, part of the great blessing of salvation is having a clear conscience. Put your head in the pillow at night and go to sleep in 30 seconds flat. Clear conscience. There are people who can't go to sleep at night because their conscience is so horribly, horribly guilty. Let's do this and go a bit further on this. Acts chapter 24. Here we have the Apostle Paul on trial before the Roman governor Felix. And as he addresses this pagan man, he says, I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. Hmm. So our conscience doesn't stay clear and clean just automatically. We have to sometimes take steps to make sure we don't ignore our conscience or deny it or defy it. And here is Paul saying, I strive, I make a deliberate effort every day to keep my conscience clear, not only before God, but before man. You see, our conscience makes cowards of us all, as the poet said. And when we are guilty before some human being we have offended and wronged and we have done something terrible to them or spread some false rumour about them or whatever. We can't look them in the eye because we have a guilty conscience. In Second Corinthians chapter 4, Paul writes about our conscience. Second Corinthians 4 verse 2, he says, We have renounced... Secret and shameful ways, we don't use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. This is not my conscience now, this is the other person's conscience. And when we are speaking truthfully, people can actually sense the ring of truth. You hear certain statements and you just know instinctively that's not true. It's not right. 
our conscience says, no, that's not right, it's not true, it's a lie. And we don't want to speak untruth to anybody. We want to commend ourselves to their conscience. And their conscience should say every time what you've said is true. And again, just for good measure, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul writes to this young pastor of the church at Ephesus and says, Timothy, my son, I give you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies once made upon you so that by following them you may fight the good fight, holding on to faith and a good conscience. Some have rejected these and so have shipwrecked their faith. That's a solemn warning. Some people who have been saved, made new in Jesus, they backslide, they drift away spiritually, and they no longer obey their conscience. And Paul says some of them get to the stage where they shipwreck their faith. Their faith is pretty worthless. It's pretty well gone. So a clear conscience is a tremendous blessing, a very, very important asset. And that depends on the shedding of Jesus' blood. A clear conscience also gives us confidence to enter the most holy place, as the writer says in chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us. When we are guilty, we sometimes feel we cannot speak to God. It's one of the nasty things that happens to us. The very time we most need to speak to God and confess our sin, we very often so, or feel so ashamed of ourselves that we say, we feel we can't face God. But you see, when our conscience is clear, we know we can face God. We can walk into his presence and know we're accepted because our, our conscience being cleansed, our whole life being cleansed by the blood of Jesus. And perhaps the best known scripture in all of this connection is 1 John 1.19. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This also, the clear conscience, the blood of Jesus rather, gives us victory over the evil one. In Revelation 12 we have this further statement from the Apostle John where he describes again something he heard in heaven, or from heaven. He says, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven, saying, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. Don't forget that's one of the things Satan spends time doing. Accusing people who sin in the presence of God and saying there's your salvation for you they haven't really changed at all they overcame him, the believers overcame the enemy the devil by the blood of the lamb, by the word of their testimony and they didn't shrink from even giving up their lives if that were necessary. We have victory over Satan only by the blood of the lamb so the shedding of blood brings tremendous blessings into our lives. What's the second thing we want to notice from Hebrews that we cannot possibly do without? Well, we've been in chapter 9. Let's move over to chapter 11. And there we find words which are more familiar to us, perhaps. 
Chapter 11, this great chapter of heroes of the faith in the Old Testament times. And as the writer records these various people in their lives, he says this, Without faith it is impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Faith is a gift from God. And a very, very precious one, an important one at that. It is impossible, says the Bible, to please God without faith. But obviously, if you don't believe he exists, you will treat him as a, as, as a, a non-entity, as some, someone who's just not there. <clears throat> Remember, the atheist says there is no God. The agnostic says there may be a God, but we cannot know him. Both are utterly wrong. And here we're reminded that without faith it's impossible to please God. We must believe that he exists and, says the Bible, we must also believe he rewards those who earnestly seek him. I have discovered over the years that some Christians get a bit, bit edgy, a bit uneasy when we start talking about rewards. Oh, I don't deserve any rewards. I don't want rewards. I'm satisfied with what I have. I have the Lord Jesus. I have eternal life. I have forgiveness of sin. I have the hope of glory. I don't want rewards. Thank you very much. Well, thank you very much, but you're going to get them anyway, unless you blot your copybook. That's a possibility. So, we are encouraged to expect God to reward us. You see, faith enables us to perceive the reality of God. In that wonderful prayer that Jesus prayed before he went to the cross, praying for his disciples, he began early in the prayer speaking to his Father and says, This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And how do we know God? How do we know Jesus? by faith. It is faith that enables us to perceive the reality of God. The atheist says there is no God. There just isn't a God. Well, there is. And we know him by faith. This gift of faith also enables us to receive the righteousness of God. You remember in Romans chapter 3, uh, Paul is speaking, writing about righteousness and we're constantly reminded when we come to this kind of passage that human beings' main deficiency, our principal lack in life, is a lack of righteousness. We lack the rightness that enables us to have dealings with God. We must get that rightness from outside of ourselves. Now, we know very well in Hebrews, in, in Romans 3, um, the Apostle says there is no one righteous, not even one. No human being is righteous until God gives us his righteousness. But in chapter 1, you see, we're told that in the Gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. God has revealed that this righteousness that we lack in ourselves is available. And it's not available to purchase, it's available for free. In Romans chapter 3, same phrase again, a righteousness, but now a righteousness from God, apart from law, has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ. How can an unbeliever get this righteousness? By faith. By coming in repentance and faith to Jesus and yielding his or her life 
to the rightful Lord of all. Wonderful, wonderful. In Ephesians 2, we're told that it is by grace that we have been saved through faith. And that very faith is not something we manufacture. It's something God gives to us. So faith enables us to perceive the reality of God, to receive the righteousness of God, and to receive, yes, the rewards of God. In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul exhorting people to be motivated properly in their daily work. He says this, Romans chapter 6, um, Serve the Lord wholeheartedly, serve wholeheartedly, as if you were serving the Lord, not men, because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does, whether he is slave or free. The Bible says God is just loves handing out rewards. And Jesus himself mentioned this in Matthew chapter 6, where he's speaking to his disciples, basically, and he says this. He says this in Matthew chapter 6. When you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be seen in, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And also... In verse 6, when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen, then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And I want to take you to a passage that we looked at only a few weeks ago, but it's so important, I believe, to comprehend what this really is saying. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, because it sheds light on the future of the Christian who has drifted of course to some extent in the course of his or her life Paul there emphasizes there is no other foundation for the Christian life than the one already laid which is Jesus Christ then he says if any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay or straw his work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light it will be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each man's work if what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. If it is bound up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. The reason why Paul uses this language is because in Corinth there were substantial stone buildings which would withstand fire to a certain extent. The timbers in them would be burned, the stones would remain standing. There was also a shanty town in Corinth where if a fire broke out, everything would be completely wrecked and destroyed and nothing left but the ashes. And he says that's an illustration of what can happen in a Christian's life. What we build into our Christian life is tremendously important. I've known Christians, I know Christians today, I suspect you know some of them too, who are Christians, they're undoubtedly Christians, they know the Lord, they read the Bible, they pray, they go to church, but they have not been careful over the years to build into their Christian lives what Christians should build into their lives. And so they're, they're weak in faith, they're not good at handling temptation. They get things wrong all too easily. Mm. But you see, as we build the right stuff into our Christian lives, we'll be saved at the end of the day. And the Bible says we will have a reward. Something additional, whatever it's going to be. 
But the poor Christian who has not built the right stuff into his or her life will be saved. But sorry, sorry, for you, sorry, no reward. A great pity, a great shame, because God is not honoured where we live in a way that causes us to lose <coughs> our rewards. Three things we can't do without. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. And the Bible also says in Hebrews chapter 12, without holiness, no man can see the Lord. Verse 14, make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. You may be in a family where all the members of the family are Christians. But there's probably one person in the family an outstanding Christian, a really godly Christian, a spiritually minded Christian, a Christian who's living the way Christians ought to live every day, more or less. But some of the other Christians in that family uh, operate at a different level. Oh yes, you know what I'm saying. Some Christians just almost mock fellow Christians who are apparently ultra-holy in the eyes of their less holy brethren. That's a fact. <coughs> but here we're told without holiness no one will see the Lord. Interestingly, the commentators who comment on scripture and help to bring out its meaning for us really haven't much to say on this point because it's hard to be certain what is meant by seeing the Lord. If we live until he returns, we shall see him touched down on planet Earth, and that'll be glorious. If we get to heaven before he returns, we'll see him there, that'll be glorious. But what about the present? In the year that King Uzziah died, says the prophet Isaiah, I saw the Lord. He had a vision of the Lord. The Lord makes himself visible today to certain people in certain situations. And many of you, most of you, maybe all of you know, that among the many Muslims who are becoming Christians in this day and age, so many of them testify, I had a dream, and I saw a man clothed in white who came and told me what to do. They saw the Lord. Now, they weren't yet holy, but they were going to be made holy as they came to Jesus. So, I don't know about you, but... If the Lord can be seen, I want to see him. I want to see him. Without holiness, nobody will see the Lord. In the Beatitudes, the teaching of Jesus, he said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Purity, holiness, very, very similar concepts. And in 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter says, Prepare your minds. For action, be self-controlled, set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. As obedient children, don't conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy, because I'm holy. The writer Peter is quoting from the book of Leviticus where in the Old Testament the Jewish people had the same teaching given them. Be holy because 
I am holy. What is holiness? The essential meaning of the word holy is apart. Not here, but over there. Before I become a Christian, I'm over here in the kingdom of darkness. In the kingdom where Satan pulls strings and manipulates people and messes up their lives. But when I'm saved and I'm born again into the family of God, I'm over here now. I'm set apart from sin, from Satan, for God. That's holiness. That's holiness. It's a much happier place to be. We know from experience that being unholy, living without Jesus, living a sinful life, is very often unpleasant, unfulfilling, uncomfortable. But once we are saved from our sin, our present position, you see, is one of holiness. And that's emphasized in Hebrews chapter 10. In Hebrews 10 verse 10, the writer writing to these Christians says, We have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. When we come to Jesus, God makes us holy. As we've just said, we're transferred from one kingdom into another, one family into another. And one of the marks of the new family is being made holy. Two verses later on, the writer says something very similar. He, he says, um, verse 12, yeah, 14. He says, verse 14, By one sacrifice, God has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. That's a pretty good deal. Being made perfect forever. Now, most of us wouldn't like to go around telling other people that uh, they ought to respect us, they ought to love us, uh, they ought to listen to us because we're holy. It's not very clever to go around telling people you're holy. But it's not very clever either to ignore the fact that in God's eyes, that's what we are objectively. And that's who we ought to be aiming to become subjectively in our daily living more and more and more. Our present position is one of holiness. We operate now from the base of holiness, not unholiness. So what should our daily practice be? Well, in that wonderful prayer I referred to in John 17, as Jesus prayed for his disciples, he said, Father, sanctify them. Make them holy by the truth. Make them holy by the truth. I have been disturbed recently, not too long ago, to sense the number of Christians for whom this is largely a closed book. Well, they might read it in church on Sunday. They might read it occasionally in times of emergency or distress or sorrow or whatever. But you see, this is our daily bread spiritually. Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, material bread. But by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And the words that proceed from the mouth of God are recorded in this book. And woe betide us if we leave it unread. Maybe I'm treading in your toes this morning at this point. Maybe you've been a bit careless. Can I encourage you to leave that carelessness behind? And whatever else you do, if at all possible, make time every day to spend some time reading the word of God. This is our spiritual food. We need to be fed on the scriptures every day. And equally, we need to be filled with the Spirit 
every day. We know that from Ephesians 5.18 where Paul says keep on, keep on, keep on, keep on being filled with the Spirit every day. You know it only takes minutes, not even minutes, seconds almost to ask for a fresh infilling of the Spirit every day. I do it, I commend it to you. It does make a difference. And to feed on the Word of God and to be filled with the Spirit every day keeps us spiritually healthy and strong and life is a struggle at times but it's also a delight because we're living in obedience to Father God we're seeking to carry out his commands be holy, be holy, be holy live out this holy life I've given you because I'm holy three things we can't do without the shedding of blood, faith and the blessing of holiness Let's pray. Father, forgive us for when we've been careless and neglectful, failing to take the very steps that make such a difference to our daily life. Will you give us a resolve from this day forward, whatever we've been doing in the past, to seek your face every day, to feed upon your word every day, and to seek a fresh infilling of your spirit every day. In Jesus' name. Amen.